back into the extras. We, we love every week, it's involved. We're always keen as people text in their questions while we're listening to the Bible, listening to the sermon, and then we get the, the joy of sitting down together uh, and chatting them through. So really looking forward to that time with you, Peter. It's been, yeah, I, I think we've had some quite stimulating discussions the last little while, you know, what genre is Jonah and where does it fit in history? You know, we're, we're tackling some big things in here and some more big issues coming up today. Now, before we get into the questions, though, can you remind us, Peter, what were we looking at on Sunday? What have we seen in the book of Jonah in the last week? That's right. So we arrived at last, after many twists and turns, at the kind of finale of the story. And really, the main action is all concluded. Uh, Jonah's finally made it all the way to Nineveh. He's presented the word of the Lord. The Lord has uh, relented as the Ninevites repented. And Jonah reacts to this now, a big, big reaction, very unhappy. And the Lord challenges him on that in various different ways, challenging him and really challenging us about our response and what the Lord's compassion means to us. Yeah, I find it fascinating this chapter. I mean, so many things that I loved about getting into this, but one is this is the first moment where Jonah and God actually have a conversation. Like the whole way through you have at different points, Jonah speaks to God in his prayer and God says, tells Jonah what to do. And this is finally like you have the showdown where they actually have the back and forth and they like thrash out. What has this all been about? Like, Jonah, what's going on for you? What's the deal with God? It all kind of comes tumbling out in this last chapter, and oh, it's yeah, it's, it's a wonderful yeah. way that the story comes together. It's just brilliant. Love this book. Some great questions that have come in. Uh, one of them uh, to start with. This is a bit of a longer one. I'll, I'll just read the whole question. So, um, really thoughtful kind of response here. Uh, Someone texted in. I've got a few comments about the Jonah four sermon. The first is I'm not really sure what to make of Jonah's anger. Peter, you went with a kind of mocking tone, which felt quite dismissive. But I do think Jonah had a correct yearning for God's justice despite him being disobedient to God's command. Hold that thought. My second comment is the question, is it right to be angry? Which, Peter, you answered with a strong negative. No, it's not. The ESV translation is a bit more nuanced, asking, does it well? Does it do well for you to be angry? Uh, which I think frames Jonah's reaction with a bit more nuance, you know, reflecting upon his life and the lives of the people of Nineveh. Yeah. How do we think about all of that? So we've got, you know, Jonah's anger. Is that a good thing? Is he right to be angry? Yeah. How would you respond to all that, Peter? Yeah, I think it's great uh, to be thinking so carefully and really turning these things over. Uh, I think that it's important for us to be attentive to the tone and the emphasis of the text. And certainly things like the concern for justice have been very much in the air as we've gone through Jonah. And that's Mm. something that's been raised in the Bible teaching. But I think... At the end of the story, we arrive in a place where it's pretty clear that Jonah's in the wrong. Yeah. And in fact, if we read uh, the kind of mocking, uh, satirical kind of tone uh, is pretty sharp at the end. I think Jonah very clearly is held up as a figure of uh, ridicule, Mm. um, but not sort of in a a funny ha-ha way, in a way that we're supposed to find deeply challenging so certainly if we point the finger at him and condemn him we've missed the point because we are in fact supposed to look at him and think huh Ooh, is that me yeah that's right i think that's exactly it like i think the book of jonah it wants you to laugh at jonah like i think that and like you get to the end of it and he's, he's just this ridiculous person you know like his plant um grows and it's like he's ecstatic like you know he rejoices with this great joy he's just like over the moon and then suddenly he's like crumbling in a heap because it's gone and i think you are meant to just kind of look at that and be like, it's just, like, it's just kind of pathetic. And then you are caused to ask, well, actually, hang on, like, oh, oh, I know, you know, someone who would dare to 
care so much about this tiny insignificant thing and then not really care about God's bigger concerns? Like, isn't that just a big joke? Like, oh, hang on a second, I know someone like that. Oh, that's me. So you kind of laugh and the book wants you to flip it back on yourself. So you're right. Like, we laugh until we realise, oh, I'm, I'm the butt of this joke as well. So, yeah, I think the mocking tone's right, as you said, but it's, yeah, you very quickly realise that you're the one being mocked by this book in a sense as you have to wrestle with how your heart is about God's compassion. Yeah, and the concern for justice is a legitimate one, and this is somewhere we see something we see right through the scriptures. Like, will not the judge of all the earth do right? It's important mm. that the Lord uh, is just and avenges wickedness on the earth. However, I don't think we should see Jonah as the kind of prime exponent of that concern. Yeah, what Jonah wants uh, is justice in a sense, but he wants his enemies to cop it in the neck. Mm. He wants justice without mercy, and. The point is, well, Jonah, what would have happened if you received justice without mercy? Yeah. Israel, what would happen if you got justice without mercy? That is a, a ridiculous thought, and not really in a funny ha-ha way, mm. in a come on now, you better change yeah. kind of way. Yeah, helpful. It's complex, like, but yeah, I think, I think that's a helpful answer, yeah. We'll keep moving on. Someone else uh, texted in, how do you know verses 5 onwards, so... This is where Jonah goes outside the city and he's sitting down, you know, waiting for the fireworks show to rain down on Nineveh. Um, how do you know this is an epilogue? Could it not just be that Jonah is in denial? He thinks God will still de- destroy the city? Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I said in my uh, in my sermon that uh, this is uh, a little kind of epilogue, um, which uh, I think is right. I think this is a final section where we kind of uh, are encouraged to reflect back, you know, the main action is mostly done and we're mm. meant to think back, okay, well, what did it all mean? What does it all add up to? Yeah. I said there was a flashback that this occurs um, kind of a little further uh, back up the kind of temporal track mm. of the timeline. Um, and you can see that reflected in the NIV's translation, Jonah had gone out, and that's really just kind of buying into this idea. Well, he already knew it wasn't going to happen, so this must have happened before. We do see at some other points in the story, our author, who's a, a, a superb and crafty storyteller is is clearly playing with the temporal uh, sequence of things a little yeah. bit, telling things out of order for maximum effect. So I think this could be going on here, but it's not. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily the case, and uh, I don't think too much hangs on it. What, what do you think? Yeah, uh, um, it's worth you all listeners knowing. So Peter and I see a little bit differently on this issue, and that's okay. We're still friends. You know, we can disagree about things. We can still podcast together. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think that I, as I read this story, I mean, the NIV translation is interesting. Jonah had gone out, so the kind of that extra past tense, you know, technically we call that a pluperfect. It's like, it's, you know, something talking about this happened way back when. Um, it's not the only way you can translate that verb, and in some ways, like, the way that the story is told just looks a bit more like a straight story, like the way that Hebrew narrative says, you know, this thing happened and then nothing happened. That's the kind of normal thing that's going on in this verb. So I don't think there's necessarily anything in the text that kind of demands that it be read as that flashback. And I get what you mean about the logic, like, oh, it's kind of thinking into, like, you know, the 40 days happened and when does Jonah kind of work out that it's not going to be destroyed? Yeah, I think as I read the chronology of Jonah, I think you see kind of chapter 3, verse 10, God relents. I take it that kind of is at the end of the 40 days that Jonah's been preaching and only after that kind of chapter 4 starts and Jonah complains. But again, that's something that relies on, you know, that's an assumption that the text doesn't speak about explicitly either, so... Um, either way, there's kind of, you know, the narrator's playing with time, that kind of thing. I think either way, it just doesn't really matter that much. I don't think it affects the meaning of the story necessarily to, you know, there might be sort of a chronology that's flipped out of order. Either way, the thing that the story leads you with is, like, it's crafted so that you finish with God's question to Jonah, right? So it finishes on, 
you know, I'm concerned about this whole city and 120,000 people and animals and yeah, the story's crafted to finish with that. Whichever way the chronology exactly works out, I don't think really matters. Yeah. 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 Um, we'll come onto that that last point though. So it does finish on the question of the animals. Um, uh, yeah, I'll just read the last verse. So um, God says, Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? And that's... This is one of the things that I love about Jonah. It's just... There's so many things that are funny about the book. And that's the last word. It's like many animals. That's where it finishes. And someone's asked the question, oh, there's the same animal vibes here from chapter 3. So pointing back to, you know, put the cows in the sackcloth and ashes. Um, is the book of Jonah making a comment about animal salvation? Or if not, you know, what's the idea behind finishing on the animals? I don't get it. That's the question. Yeah. Well, I think um, a question has, has really astutely pointed out that animals are a consistent uh, mm. interest in the book. Yeah. And um, it is, I think, a little bit tricky to pin down exactly what is going on with animals. I think um, if, you, if, you, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that perhaps these Old Testament narratives, like the rules are a little bit different than for us, so they don't necessarily end like the last word is like, that's the main point. They're happy mm. for things to kind of trail off in a bit in yeah. a way that we wouldn't do as English storytellers. So it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, well, the animals, that's the big rousing note to finish on. Yeah. Um, it's, so it's hard to figure out exactly what it is. It could be if, if the animals are like a bit of a, a bit of a gag, one of the funny things in the book of Jonah, uh, not everyone reckons they are, but some mm. people think, well, it's pretty silly to dress your animals up in sackcloth. Um, that's a bit of a, a laughing moment. And God is, you know, giving a bit of a callback. Hey, look how lost these guys are. Mm. Um, remember they, <laughs> remember they put sackcloth on their animals. They really don't know they're right from their left. So yeah. I think mean, that's one thing that it could mean. Mm. Yeah, and that's more the kind of direction that I take it. So if there's other things that could mean, that's probably more on you. Yeah, what else? If it's not that, then what else is the writer saying with the animals? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I tend to think it could be that. But uh, there is there, there is definitely this uh, idea of concern, and it could be part of a sort of a how much more mm. argument. So um, if the Lord's concern is for, well, small things, uh, God's having business with, a worm and a fish mm. and a plant. Uh, well, animals are more significant than that, mm. uh, definitely. And there's lots of animals in Nineveh. And people even more, even more than that. Yeah. So I think it could be a part of this general argument that, that God certainly is making here. Look, if it's right to be concerned with little things, how much more right to be concerned about big things? Yeah. I think it's worth pointing out, like, yeah, I, you know, I think the question mentioned animal salvation. Like, I don't think that's necessarily what's in view here. I think the idea of animal salvation um, runs into all sorts of problems in the Bible because what animals need to be saved from? Like, animals, I don't think, sin in the same way as people, so it's not like animals are morally culpable in the same way and need saving. But it's not like it's just an either, you know, either God cares about animals and therefore they will be kind of, you know, glorified and raised in resurrection bodies in the same way that people will, or God just doesn't care at all. Like, I don't think they're the only two options. Like, I think you see in the Bible this picture of a God who made this world and has created everything and created it good and cares about creation like he you know in genesis 1 and 2 he puts the man in the garden to work it and cultivate it and take care of it and even in that case you know he still gives the plants to people for food like he you know there's a whole ecosystem god has set up but god cares about it like he's concerned for that and he might care about people in a slightly different way as you know the kind of capstone part of creation made in his image but yeah i think god god cares about cows and sheep like he made them good and like when they're mistreated and abused and you know like all that sort of stuff going on, like, yeah, we've been 
made to cultivate the earth and to dominate it and pillage it like that's wrong so yeah like there's there's a whole spectrum of concern i think there in god's setup but yeah he he cares for the world that he's made i think that's part of what's going on there yeah that's certainly in the background anyway i mean i might have already sort of slightly answered this question but someone just also texted peter you mentioned god loves his creation both plants animals and humans uh why then did he cause the plant to die by sending a worm God loves a plant. How can, you know, oh, the poor thing gets chewed up and dies? Like, what's going on? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, uh, I think it's perhaps not quite right to say, as you point out, Jack, that God, uh, God's concern for the non-human world is kind of precisely equivalent to his concern for the human world. And uh, certainly... God is concerned with the non-human world, and that, I think, is one of the lessons in the background of mm. the book of Jonah. Uh, but it's it's wrong to think of uh, God's concern for people and God's concern for the non-human world in the same way. And, mm. and as you point out, even at the beginning, um, God gives the plants part of what is good about God's good world is that plants can sustain animal and human life. And of course, if we think about it, it's hard to imagine how the animals will get along if they don't ever get to eat mm. anything. Uh, and part of what is good about being a plant is that you can sustain life, right? That a plant can do that. Yeah. So it's kind of a maybe a more holistic picture of good and all of that. Like if we kind of naively think, oh, everything that God cares about can only ever like live and not die. Like that just might be a little narrow. Like as God said, this whole world with different parts of it, and there's a yeah, there's a there's a whole you know, synergy in an ecosystem and yeah, goodness is seeing human beings and other creatures flourish and plants get to be a part of that by getting digested and that's good. That's right. One of the things that I thought about a little bit and didn't mention in the sermons as I read the book of Jonah, think about all the things that um, the Lord is concerned with or the things that kind of come to serve the Lord in their own special way and, and all in different ways. Um, wind and water, mm. sun, uh, Bug, plant, fish, prophet, reluctantly, very you know, in the most complicated way out of anyone. Yeah. But it made me think about um, that 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 hymn that we sing: "All creatures of our God and King." You know, thou rushing wind that art so strong, mm. oh praise Him, and uh, the praise of the non-human world perhaps isn't a uh, isn't the same kind of conscious and cognizant praise as the praise of human beings who know the word of the Lord and respond uh, out of our hearts. But that different praise is perhaps yeah, no less real. Yeah, that's a striking thought, yeah. Love it. Oh, that's great. We'll keep moving on. All right, uh, next question. Someone says, uh, the Ninevites are described by God as those who don't know their right hand from their left. I guess we had a few different questions text in basically all variations of what's the deal with that um so i read one of them here someone's asking you know does that phrase refer to their ignorance of god and would that then point to the unbelieving world and god's care of them and our responsibility for compassion uh, you know as that was god's point to jonah yeah more broadly right hand left hand what's going on with that so it's a funny phrase yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for most people, the right's the one you write with, and that's how you remember that. Yeah. Uh, Sorry to the 10% of you out there who are Southpaws. We love you too. Yeah, but you're on your own. No, no <laughs> mnemonic for you. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't tell their right hand from their left. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a general picture of not knowing which way to go. Mm. Uh, so, um, 
uh, yeah, they don't, they don't know how to how to choose the good path. Mm. Uh, they're kind of ignorant in a sense. Yeah, and I think he there's maybe a little more to say. I think you could read it as like, oh, does that just mean like they don't know right from wrong, for instance? Like they just have no kind of moral sense of what's going on. And I think that would be reading too much into it because I think chapter three of Jonah shows very clearly that the Ninevites should know better. Like God is going to judge them for their wrongdoing and he's going to hold them to account. Like if they, you know, had no idea, oh, I didn't know it was wrong for me to be a brutal, murderous, tyrannical empire kind of thing, then how would God be justified in judging them? But no, the point is God's going to hold them to account. They should know better. So I don't think it's that they have no moral compass, but I think it is kind of saying they have a broken moral compass. Like, they they know, they have some idea of what's wrong, and you, know, you kind of see that when the king of Nevis says, like, you know, let's turn from our wicked ways. Like, he acknowledges, like, oh, yeah, what we did is wrong. So I think, yeah, knowing right from left, like, it's not saying they have no idea of right and wrong, but they are lost. Like, they just, they don't know which way to turn, they don't know who to go to, they don't know how the spiritual world's meant to work. So they have this, yeah, I think it's a really evocative phrase, because it shows you that, these are people who are accountable for their wrongdoing and yet are kind of lost and don't know what don't know what they're doing. Like both those things are true. So I think you see both justice and mercy kind of in the picture. Like God is gonna hold them to account for their wrongdoing and yet he kind of takes pity on their lostness and when they turn and he relents. You have yeah, I think it's a complex picture. And I mean that's that's us, isn't it? Like that's our kind of walk with, with sin and you know, we we are without excuse, like we do wrong, we'll be held accountable to that. And yet people who don't know Christ, they're just, there's this lostness, like we, we don't really know what we're doing and what we do is wrong, but we still like, we don't know where to turn with it. Yeah. So I think you get that complex picture of the human condition, which is just so crucial. And isn't it good that God takes pity on us in our lostness and sent Christ to redeem us from it? Yeah. Mm. Hopefully that helps with that. Um, another question, and this is really... These ones so far have all been wrestling with some of the details in the text, and this is a good one to kind of wrap up that part of this discussion, I guess. Why is Jonah in the Jewish scriptures? How much is Jonah an indictment of Israel's failure and their reluctance to be a blessing to the nations? Uh, is it as much a national question as a personal one? And then in the same vein, how much does it speak to us as God's people about showing mercy to the nations? It's kind of a big question, isn't it? Why, why is Jonah in the Bible? Well, I think for all of those reasons, I think that's certainly right. So. Yeah. In its, uh, in its original context uh, in the nation of Israel, the national life of Israel, as it speaks uh, into that national life. As we said, we don't really know precisely at what point in mm. the story of God's people Israel it's speaking into yeah. their life. Um, but that's certainly its force. Um, you know, it's not right. It's not right to imagine that uh, the Lord is concerned only with us, but certainly, you know, we have to share the blessings we've received with others it's a it's a way of applying genesis 12 as our questioner points mm. out uh right blessed to be a blessing yeah yeah helpful and i think for us we we kind of hear it individualistically and i mean it's a challenge both for us as individuals and i think as god's people but as individuals we are part of god's people like those two things are linked as well mm. but i think that's right yeah i mean we we stand here in this book as Christians, and I think in many ways that the the message to the Israelites is it's just, you can just really see how easily that transfers onto us as Christians. Like it's the bit that doesn't transfer is you know we're no longer a nation. We talked a lot about that last week, but we are people who can just so easily kind of be blind to our bitterness and our unwillingness to forgive others and show mercy to others, even when we've been forgiven so much. Like I think we read the Book of Jonah and can just see how clearly we can see ourselves in in this this picture like it's it's very clearly calling us to 
embrace God's heart and, you know, turn away from our own, that kind of thing. All that's going on. Yeah, good. All right. Uh, this is a que- another question, and this is really a question that's sort of come up in a different way each week the past little while. Uh, how does predestination play in with free will in salvation? Big question there. Uh, if God knew the Ninevites will repent, why bother using Jonah? Well, it is a question we've spoken about a few times, and I think uh, it would be worth going back perhaps and listening to some of those discussions. Uh, the point is that God does use Jonah, mm. and this is a part of the picture of God's sovereignty that we have in the Bible. So we oughtn't to take our own sort of preconceptions about God's sovereignty and think, oh, well, being in charge would mean you already everything was already figured out, so you wouldn't have to bother engaging. You'd just kind of bang, bang, bang like a big machine, everything you know, effect follows from cause and Mm. there you go. It's not like that in the Bible. Yeah. The picture we have of the sovereign Lord in the Bible is that, well, he puts the question to Jonah. Mm. He he floats that question out there and gives Jonah time and space to answer it. He doesn't uh, make Jonah act against his will. He wants Jonah to, to, to rightly, willingly choose the right thing. Now, the Lord is in control of the whole thing, but that Jonah makes a genuine response is important to the Lord. And similarly, with Nineveh, God goes to all the trouble to get a prophet there to preach a message to them because it is important to the Lord that these people respond, a genuine response. Of course, the Lord is in control, but part of the Lord's control means a genuine, responsible, responsive human action yeah and Peter you, you went here for this when we did our Roman series last year which many of our listeners will have heard we brought some language for that which I hope helpfully kind of captures it and be good to remind you of that I think one of the things that Sam and I were saying is God's sovereignty and predestination that kind of thing God's sovereignty in the Bible never functions in a way to sort of trump or overrule human responsibility like to make it that our things don't matter and the same way, you know, humans are never held responsible in the Bible in a way that sort of short circuits or puts God's sovereignty out of the picture. Like, both those things are true, but I mean, the one that's really crucial here is that, yeah, God knew what was going to happen, he knew what the Ninevites would do, but that is never meant to say that uh, human actions are irrelevant, because God calls the Ninevites to a response, and their response matters, and God calls Jonah to do something, and how he interacts with that matters. And I mean, bigger picture, all of that is played out to tell a story to us, which has a point, right? Because it's telling us that our response to God matters as well. So, yeah, never assume that God's sovereignty is this automatic thing that just means I don't have to care about anything. Like, the whole point of the book of Jonah is, no, here is something you should care about, and how you care about it really matters. Yes, that's the punchline. It demands Mm. a response from you. Yeah, exactly. All right. A few questions, I guess, starting to think about how do we live this out, some application issues. Uh, Firstly, how many people, someone asked, how many people sitting in this very church have lived in sin, and what separates them from Jonah? As we read this question, Peter, and I weren't exactly sure what uh, this question asked was getting at, so if we kind of misinterpret your question, apologies, but going with what we're, uh, we've got here, I-, I wondered if maybe this person's thinking, oh, like, we're Sydney, you know, we laugh at Jonah and we ridicule him, and is this person wondering, well, you know, which of us, you know, he, he was without the sin, throw the first stone at Jonah, like, what right do we have to point the finger and laugh at Jonah? Is that maybe, what, if that's what this is getting at, yeah. Yeah, and so we shouldn't take that message away from Jonah. Ha ha ha, look at this foolish guy. Mm. Uh, but rather, it's one of those cases where when you point the finger at someone, there are three pointing back at you. Yeah. And that is very deliberate. I think we're enticed by our crafty author to render a judgment on Jonah, but at the same time, we're 
calling ourselves into judgment, into question, whatever kind of questions the text puts to Jonah, those questions are put to us mm. as well. Uh, and so who hasn't lived in sin? Well, certainly all of us have. And have we, uh, are we complicit in this kind of sin? Well, perhaps we are. That's an important question that Jonah makes us ask. And we spent some time thinking about that over the weekend. To what extent might we be complicit in the same kind of hypocrisy mm. and hard-heartedness as Jonah? So uh, we certainly can't be rushing to condemn him if it means insulating ourselves from a similar yeah. kind of critique. That's just not the way to read the book. Totally, yeah. I mean, this person's question, like, what separates them from Jonah? Like, for some of us, probably not a lot. And that's the point, isn't it? So that's the, the point the book's challenging us to reckon with. Yeah, helpful question. Uh, another one. Uh, how do we navigate this idea of us and them in our world? Is not picking sides and separating ourselves almost indirectly doing that whole us and them thing. I think you use this language a bit, Peter, yeah. How can you help us think about that? Yeah, I talked a little bit about us and them. Uh, and I think, the, I think the key point that I'm keen uh, for us to keep bearing in mind is that as Christian people, we belong body and soul, heart, mind, soul, strength to the Lord. Mm. We're His. We belong to Him. And we live in a world that encourages us to belong to a side, to a team, to choose an us over against a them. Yeah. And I think that that is an impulse that we ought to resist because uh, all of the various kinds of usums that line up against all the various thems want to claim us, body and soul, mm. for, uh, for one position over against another. But as Christians, we don't take sides in the kinds of conflicts that people have against one another. We belong to Jesus. We're on his side. Mm. Now, practically speaking, of course, uh, there are all kinds of divisions where we will sort of naturally fall onto one side, or we may think, in terms of principle, no, no, this side is clearly in the right, uh, as they articulate themselves, over against that side. And it's appropriate for me to support this side and not that side. But I think it's important for us to always be a little bit uncomfortable mm. with whatever us we have kind of lined up alongside. That'll only ever be a sort of a temporary alliance and a provisional one. We're not ready to give ourselves over body and soul to yeah. one of the kingdoms of the earth because we belong to the kingdom of the Lord. We've been ransomed and redeemed for it. So it's right for us to be uncomfortable on whatever team we find ourselves on because we're on Jesus' team. That's the team that matters. Yeah, it's helpful. No, I like that. Uh, we, we're fast running out of time for today, but we've got two more questions that we're going to uh, try and get through. Uh, let me read this one. In the sermon, it sounds like if Jonah had worked for the, if Jonah had worked for the plant, his anger might be justified. Using the war example, should we not therefore be angry at Russia slash Putin, especially since we don't work or are affected by them? Did I read that right? Sorry. Should Let me let me try and paraphrase the question because it's a long one. I think this person's asking, um, so Jonah gets told, look, you know, you didn't work for the plant and yet you care about it. Is the point, you know, in something like what's going on in Ukraine, you know, it doesn't directly affect us. Is it therefore wrong for us to be angry about it because, you know, we're not there in the thick of it? Um, and the question goes on, you know, how do we kind of show compassion and pray for people? How can we practically show, you know, compassion to people in Ukraine when we're so far away. What's going on in that? What do you want to tackle first? <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, I guess on the on the small scale, uh, I don't think the point is if... Uh, the, the point is that Jonah's concern for the plant, uh, though shallow and a bit silly, mm. um, is kind of justified 
in a sense. And the Lord wants to the Lord doesn't want to take issue with Jonah's concern for the planet and say, Don't worry about that planet. You didn't even work for it. Yeah. That's not the point. It's mm. well, okay, sure. You like the planet. Scale up your concern for that planet to think about something a little bit more deep and a bit more serious, the city yeah. of Nineveh. Yeah, I think that's important. Like I think in Jonah four, I don't think God answers his question in verse nine. So Jonah says, like, yeah, it was right for me to care about the planet. And God, I don't think, answered the question. Like, he just moves on. Because, like, whether it's right or wrong, I don't think it's the point. Like, the point is, as you said, like, Jonah cares about something. How much more should God care about something that matters even more? Like, whether Jonah's concern was right or not, like, the point is he is concerned. And God's like, yeah, how much more am I concerned about this bigger thing? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, I I don't... uh, Certainly we oughtn't to draw a lesson that we need only be concerned about things that directly affect us. I, yeah. I don't think that would be a right lesson to draw. And uh, certainly compassion for the Ukrainians is right. It's yeah. right. These are people made in God's image. And and that's really the point of the book mm. of Jonah, isn't it? That the Lord made these people. He loves them. They're lost. They're even sinful. But the Lord loves them nonetheless. Uh, and he's, he's pushing Jonah. Oughtn't you to share my compassion? And so I think it's right. I think it's a right... Uh, implication for us to draw from this book that what happens in Ukraine concerns the Lord, it ought to concern us. And if we want to show that concern in, in concrete ways, well, that's a right and a good thing to do. Mm. Yeah, and we've been suggesting some ways, you might have seen in our church news email a couple of weeks ago, we said here's a, a possible avenue if you want to support people who are particularly Christians who are you know, being hampered and affected by this war effort, here's a way that you could give and you know give money towards that thing. There's There's all sorts of ways that we can be um, yeah, I think there were some prayer points in that session as well. So if you want to care and you want to pray, then yeah, we'd maybe direct you to the church news email and you can contact the office at church if you'd like more info on that as well. Hmm. Last question to round us out. Someone says, it's easy to forgive until we become the victim. How do we get the strength to cope with that? It's really true, isn't it? Just how difficult a thing forgiveness is. Mm. Uh, sin is real and causes real damage. And so we oughtn't to imagine that uh, forgiveness uh, between people where there's been sin, where there's been hurt, where there's been damage, consequences, Mm. we oughtn't to imagine that's an easy thing, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really crucial. Like, I think that if you hear people talking about forgiveness, like it's this really easy, simplistic thing, like, oh, you know, God forgives you, so you should forgive. Like, I mean, that's, in a sense, that's what Jesus says, but I don't think that's meant to be a dismissive thing that makes our pain less real or if you've been wrong it's not trying to just sweep that under the rug like the cross shows you that god doesn't sweep sin under the rug like he takes it seriously he meted out his wrath on his son to make sure that every sin you know of his people that's forgiven will be dealt with like justice matters so that's that's yeah it's not meant to be an easy thing i think i mean the question asks, you know where does the strength come from like i think ultimately the strength comes from the gospel like it's seeing the the like, the, the magnitude of what we have been forgiven in Christ is just, you know, insane. And Jesus makes that point in the parable of the um, the unforgiving servant. Where, you know, there's the guy who owes his master 10,000 bags of gold, and the master decides to have compassion and just wipe that debt clear. And then the servant goes out and has his mate who owes him, like, you know, 500 coins or something. is like, you know, I'm going to make you pay every last penny. And that's just often what we do. And I think realizing the magnitude of what we've been forgiven in Christ, that's got to be the starting point for our forgiveness of those who've wronged us. And that's not to say it's going to be easy, and like I think there's a process there, and how does the strength for that come? Like It's it's through prayer, and us asking God, like, I, you know, I know that I 
want, you know, at some level I want to forgive this person. I just can't believe what they've done to me. How am I ever going to cope with that? Like, God, please, you know, grow my heart to be like yours so that I can forgive as you have forgiven me. Like, and that's, that's something that's going to take time. And talking it through with someone and having the chance to work through the hurt with another faithful brother or sister might be a part of that story as well. But in terms of where we get the strength from, I think it's from the gospel picture as we prayerfully seek to live it out and as we talk it through with people over time, like, that's a short answer, but I hope there's some of the ingredients there that might help to say it's not a simplistic thing, but I think forgiveness is a possible thing. It's possible, and uh, the we should acknowledge very much that it's, it is a it is a hard, a hard thing to do, um, but it's a necessary thing. In 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 some ways, you know, forgiveness is is the the first implication, the most direct result of the gospel. The Lord's prayer says, "Forgive us our sins." we forgive those who sin against us and there's a very tight connection between those things so the fact that we have been hurt and wronged uh, is, is, is real and powerful uh, but in a sense that's actually the only time that forgiveness can be operative mm. uh, when we are the victim of another one's wrongdoing that's not the most extreme case where it makes it less you know, necessary that we forgive that's where forgiveness happens, and, yeah. and and the Lord's call for us to forgive others as we are forgiven. That's the very arena where that happens. The arena where we have been mm. hurt, perhaps even badly hurt. So it would be wrong to say that it's an easy and a straightforward thing. Yeah, it would be wrong to say that because it's hard. Well, you know, we don't we don't need to, you know, we can give ourselves a bit of a break on the forgiveness thing. Yeah, forgiveness may not. I think, as you rightly point out. Jack, it may not mean that a relationship which has been ruptured by sin just goes back to as if it had mm. never happened. Uh, sometimes the consequences of sin are, are, are real and lasting and will fundamentally alter a relationship forever. Uh, marital infidelity will change a marriage yeah. uh, irrevocably. That's just a fact. Yeah, that's right. And forgiveness may be possible and I, you know, I know situations where it has happened like, and that doesn't mean that things are going to be the same and trust will have been broken and needs to be rebuilt and maybe never maybe rebuilt to the same stage like there are consequences but I think it's important to distinguish that forgiveness doesn't mean everything going back to how it was because sometimes it can't but forgiveness I think does mean being willing to bear the cost of saying yep that was wrong and I forgive you for that and that that's in the past and you you know we, we kind of you absorb it and you you move on yeah lots there I mean yeah it's a big and a difficult <laughs> issue, yeah. certainly. And and if this is something you're wrestling with, you know, reach out mm. to to one of the pastors uh, because I mean, the the particularities, the, the the fine details of your situation do really matter, and it's worth talking about it and praying about it yeah. with somebody. You won't find the answer to this on a podcast. This is something you need to walk <laughs> absolutely with brothers and sisters through. Mm. Yeah, we hope we give you the start of an answer, but there's an avenue as well. That's our questions for this week. We had some great ones there. Thank you to all of those who texted them in. Uh, Peter, this Sunday, we are, in a sense, we're done with the book of Jonah, and yet we have a bit of a postscript to ah, the series on Jonah this Sunday. Yeah, an epilogue, you happening. might say. Indeed, yeah. What are we looking at on Sunday? Yes, it's a little kind of bonus bit. Uh, so, a couple of times in the Gospels, Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah. Mm. And we're going to get into figuring out, well, what did he mean by that? Yeah, that's right. So, looking forward to uh, wrestling through that with you on Sunday. Till then, God bless, and we'll see you later. God bless you. Goodbye.